Start again, start again, begin. Start again, everyone. I felt that I've taken a, a deep dive and I was running out of oxygen. And I could see the surface, but I didn't think I had the energy to swim all the way to the top. I just, I had so much anger already, you know, and I, I, I just had enough. But you know what? That was the last time he ever tried to hit me again. But it takes practice. I feel so much peace, and I'm like, I want more of that. We don't know what will come. We just hope everyone. Say goodbye to our old life. It's a brand new world, a new beginning. You're listening to Caterpillar Goo, Tales of Transformation. I'm Rod Hayden, and usually right there you'd hear, and I'm Flora, but no Flora this week. She actually recorded some intro outros with me, and I had some technical difficulty, and now no Flora. I miss her. Start again, begin. Start again, everyone. But today we are talking to Alfredo Gomez. I met Alfredo at the Circles of Men project. The subject that night was fear. And he was inspired to tell a story about his life that night. And he reached out to me about telling his story on the podcast. So here is Alfredo Gomez. I was um, I was born in Mexico, and you know I was born uh, one of twelve kids, and my mother, uh, you know, had kids kind of like in a row, <laughs> like almost every every other year, every year, and um, so there was two older brothers and two older sisters before I was born, and then then the rest of them followed. So I'm the fifth kid. Well, I felt like because of the number of kids that my mom, you know, large number of kids my mom had, she just couldn't, didn't have the time to attend every one of us, you know, you know, and and she neglected some of us. And my father was a federal in Mexico, 
which uh, is kind of like the Texas Rangers used to be back in the day. And he was rural, which means that he had machine guns, shotguns, 45s carrying, you know, so, and so he was very aggressive, you know, and he would take some of the aggressiveness to the house. I mean, he, he, uh, he had a horse whip for us. Sometimes he used the handcuffs. And my older brother that I saw, you know, that he did, he handcuffed him to the window and whipped him with the horse whip. My mama, she would try to stop him from beating us. But then she would become a victim herself. You know, um, he would push her out of the way and um, and then he would, that would really kind of made him more angry than anything because he would, you know, continue the beating and then he would hit her after that for getting in the middle or trying to stop him. And and so all those things, you know, made me fearful. It's, I mean, I got horse whipped too, but more than anything, what scared me the most is watching a lot of the stuff, you know, my mother getting beat and uh, it, it was just a lot of trauma, you know. And we, uh, for me, just watching that and, and uh, even my older two brothers were fighting at one point and I went and told my dad so he could make him stop. You know, they were hurting each other. I mean, there was blood and there was, so I went and told my dad, I said, hey dad, you know, they're fighting. So I wanted him to stop, stop the fight. So he goes and, and stops the fight, of course, and whips both of them. And then he comes and whips me for being a snitch. And as of, you know, six, seven-year-old, you don't understand what you did wrong. I didn't understand what I did. So, um, you know, it was, it was uh, to me, it was very brutal. And, and, and then, so when we came to the States, when I was 12 years old, my whole family, yeah, my, my dad, my, 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 my mother, and, my, and all my brothers and sisters, we all came. Well, my father had a job. He first, he first came in and, and, and got a job here uh, in Corpus Christi, uh, and uh, he did a lot of construction. Mm. And, then, uh, and then he brought us, after he got settled, he brought us into the States. I couldn't speak English. Uh, I went to the school, and next thing you know, I'm, people don't like me. They're being mean to me. They're telling me, I don't even understand what they were saying. But, um, you know, they kept on repeating this word, wetback. And I didn't know what that meant. I really didn't know. That was my first time, you know, living in Mexico. There's no, everybody's the same, you know. No, there's no, you know, um, racial tensions or any of that stuff. And uh, so when I came here, that was foreign to me, you know, and different culture. So things didn't get better for me, you know, going to the school and, and then not being able to speak the language. The teachers would get mad because I was speaking Spanish. But what else am I going to speak if I can't speak English, right? So then I would get in trouble for that. And, uh, and my English teacher, uh, we were reading, uh, everybody was reading out loud. And then she called me to read. And I have a really heavy accent. And she made me read out loud. And, and if you can imagine the rest of the kids, you know, laughing at the pronunciation, giggling and all that. And, you know, it was really hard for me, you know, uh, witness being, you know, being there kind of like in front of everybody so everybody can laugh at. So 
so then uh, I was 15 and um, um, my father had a gun in the in the in the kitchen and I knew where he kept it a, a small 22 uh, revolver and um, I decided that I just wanted to just you know finish this finish with this uh, anger this anxiety this uh, this hate that I was feeling constant so I went to the kitchen and um, you know reached for the gun and I looked in there in the chamber and you know I had bullets all of them uh, so I you know I, I put it on my head and decided to you know, started squeezing the trigger uh, well being that it's um, uh, a revolver and you know that you as you're squeezing the trigger the hammer was all the way up and I figure okay it's gotta it's gotta go off anytime. And then there was a little pause in my mind and said, okay, what are you doing? And then I stopped and thought for a second and I said, maybe this is not what I should be doing. So I took it off my head, grabbed the hammer and put it back into place slowly. Put the gun back in the kitchen and uh, I went and picked up a Bible, just a Bible. I just wanted to read something, so much reassuring. The first thing that I read I just opened it at whatever, you know, it would come up. And it was a scripture that I read somewhere along these lines. God gave you life, that should not take it away. And from then on, you know, any time I felt that that was the answer, I knew it wasn't the answer, taking my life all out. So I decided that was never going to be an option. It's kind of funny because my father talked about the Bible a lot, and um, and he said he had read the Bible, but it seems like he was choosing, you know, the things that kind of stuck, like using the rod, and you know, and and not letting kids, you know, get away with anything. Uh, but instead he used to whip, <laughs> horse whip and belts and whatever. Um, but, uh, and then he, ne I, I never saw him go to church, but he would send us to church. And uh, there was a, a bus from the church that they would send by our house. And so I really, I really enjoy those times because, you know, it was, they, they call it the joy bus. And so we were all singing, you know, church music and church songs and, and it was really nice. I really enjoyed that growing up. Um, but still, I always felt like I, I was alone, you know, in my because I couldn't talk about the stuff that was happening at home anywhere mm -hmm. else. You know, this is kind of like a secret or a family secret, you know. So it's still, I felt alone uh, during those times. Then I got into athletics. Um, um, I, I kind of decided that athletics was a good thing for me because I felt a lot of anxiety. I mean, I felt like by doing athletics, by exercising, by running, by playing a sport, it would get my mind off, 
you know, and and concentrate on something else than all the stress and all the anxiety at home and at school and so on. So I, I tend to be competitive. If I couldn't depend uh, on, on, on people, I could depend on my own self by being the best that I could be on whatever sport that was. So, um, you know, the, the abuse with my father still continued, uh, but um, uh, I joined the track team uh, when I was a sophomore. I became a very good runner. I was a naturally good athlete, and they put me on the JV team because I joined like a week before the first cross-country meet, and I was training by myself on my own. I had you know, I had no knowledge about training, but I would just run as fast as I could for as long as I could, and that was my training. So my coach puts me on JV, uh, not knowing you know anything about me, and and then he told me before the race, Alfredo, if you get tired, just walk. So when the he did a prayer also before the race, and that was really neat, and I really liked that. And when the gun went off, I I ran into those guys in front of me because they were going like they weren't racing, they were jogging. <laughs> So I went to the front with the front runners and they're doing the same thing. They're jogging. In my mind, it's like, you know, you run as fast as you can. It's a three-mile race, cross country. So I'm like, okay. You know, I, I ran with them for about for about two, three blocks and it's like, I have enough. I just took off. I took off. I tried to relax as much as possible, but I ran in like a 90% effort, 85% effort. And then if I got tired a little bit, I would slack off a little bit and then resume again. Uh, that was my first 3.1 mile race, a um, um, 5K, and my time was a 16.08. Wow. <laughs> As a sophomore in JV, and the winning time for varsity was a 16.06. So then my coach was just so happy it's like oh my god who are you what tell me more about you and so the next time he puts me on varsity so then um, I felt stronger too as a sophomore and I started working at um, uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken part-time after school and so my, my routine was to go to the gym at 5.30, go for a three-mile run or lift weights, and then be at school at 7.30 to start the classes at 8. And then after school and after the track training, uh, I would go to the house, bike to the house, and then get ready, go straight to work at Kentucky Fried Chicken, and then get off at 10 o'clock, do my homework, and then get up early in the morning the next day. And that was my, my sophomore year, you know. But then um, one day I decided um, they were having something uh, where they had some balloons that the manager said, hey, you want to take this to your brothers and sisters? Three helium balloons. And I said, yeah, well, I have three little brothers, uh, a brother and two little sisters that I, I can give them to. So I took those helium balloons to the house and I gave them to each one of us. And then uh, my younger brother wanted the balloons and the, the other girls, the girls' balloons. And, and I told them, I said, no, that's, you have yours and you have yours and you have yours. 
No, he was kind of the spoiled one. Now my dad was spoiling kids now, you know. Now he wanted to change his ways, I guess. So he spoiled the, the youngest one. Um, and uh, he told the girls, give him their balloons. And I'm like, no, dad, that's, you know, everybody has a balloon. And then he got really mad and he started yelling and cuss, cursing at everybody and saying, give him, give the boy the balloons. So he walked away. I went to the kitchen, grabbed the knife, and popped all three of them. Well, if you can imagine my father, she goes, oh, you see what you're going to get. So he goes inside to the, to the bedroom, comes back with the belt. I'm 16 years old already. And he's coming towards me, and I stopped him, and I put my hand up, and I said, look, Dad, if you hit me, we're going to fight. I'm just telling you what's going to happen. I'm going to fight you. I'm probably going to be on top of you, most likely. I'm just letting you know, and I don't know what's going to happen after that. I'm not going to let you hit me again. Well, he looked at me, and he saw that I was very angry. He knew that, you know, I wouldn't have it anymore. He looks at me, and he says, well, just don't do it again. Turns around and walks away. That was the first time I felt some relief. You know, I felt some relief that that stopped. My father was never going to hit me again, and now I can stand up to him. I mean, it was still the struggle. And my father was still very loud and aggressive and abusive with my younger siblings and with my mom. But he knew that he couldn't do the stuff that he used to do to me. So I felt safe, but I, I would see what he was doing with everybody else, you know. And then my brothers used to drink and do drugs, you know, and when I was a freshman and sophomore in high school, and and uh, one of them was m more aggressive than the other towards me, oh, and everybody else, he was more angry. And uh, one day, about the same time that I, I stood up to my dad, he came in and I was playing with my younger sister, and uh, I was sitting on the floor with her playing, and he was sitting on uh, one of the couches uh, behind me, and then he told me to leave her alone. So I looked at him, and I saw that he either was had been doing drugs or he was drunk, one of the two. So I said, I'm not doing anything wrong. I'm just playing with her. And then he kicks me in the back of my head and, and tells me again, I told you to leave her alone. So when he kicked me, I got up and I felt that anger rise out of me and, and then I hit him. I just hit him one time. I don't know if you ever heard the expression, turn, turning off the lights, but I did turn off the lights from him. He couldn't see. I didn't knock him out or anything, but I hit him like right on the temple and he could not see for like 15 minutes. And uh, I just, I had so much anger already, you know, and I, I, I just had enough. Everybody beat me up and everybody, and I, you know, I couldn't talk sense into them, so I just felt like I had to use physical aggression. And now that I was running and lifting weights, I felt like, hey, you know, I'm gonna defend myself now. And I don't feel good about it, but that's what I did when I, as a 16 year old, I hit him. But you know what, that was the last time he ever tried to hit me again. So then, you know, it's like, I feel, okay, I feel better now. They can't mess with me anymore. But I felt like a lot of the damage was already done. So, but running, you know, would help me get out of the house. 
And I became one of the fast. Like I said, I, I, I won district in the mile, the two mile, in cross country. Uh, my sophomore year, my junior year, and senior year in a 5A, which is the biggest division there was. Um, and then I went to regionals and won the mile or the two mile at regionals. And then I went to the state. Uh, I ended up fourth my senior year. And I think it was also fourth in the mile and two mile. So I started getting a scholarship offers um, and I could go anywhere in the country, basically. I never thought about going to school. Being that my brothers were also working construction, my dad worked construction, I'd be the first boy to go to college. Uh, my, my grades were okay, but uh, my coach said to me, you know, Alfredo, you know, uh, you got to try it. Try to go to college, and, and if you don't like it, try a little bit more. And if you still don't like it, try a tiny, 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 tiny more before you. What I'm saying, he said, just give yourself a chance. You know, and, and once you give yourself, you tried, and you didn't do it, you couldn't do it, and you tried again, you couldn't do it still. You know, then you can say, at least you tr I tried. So I said, oh, well, um, I'll try it, coach. And next thing you know, I graduated from Rice. But, um, you know, going through Rice and going through college, uh, I found myself with a lot of anxiety. Uh, doing presentations, I would feel that anxiety. Uh, getting in front of groups, uh, large groups in front of the classroom, I felt a lot of anxiety. What did you think about like those kids laughing at you in, yeah. in school and you know that that fear of being laughed at? Yeah, they're being laughed at, that uh, I wasn't smart enough, that uh, I, I didn't belong there. I almost kind of like the thing, you know, not, I felt like I didn't belong in the States coming here to the United States because I was a wetback or I didn't, uh, I felt that I didn't belong at Rice, you know, that I shouldn't be there. You know, same old feelings. And then get in front of a, uh, a classroom, and, you know, I, I felt a lot of anxiety in, you know, speaking in front of it and doing a presentation. Uh, but then after I graduated from Rice, I decided to teach there at Lamar High School in Houston. And I was teaching there um, Spanish and coaching uh, 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 soccer. Uh, and, um, and I did that for one year, but I, again, I felt a lot of anxiety, you know, being in front of the, in the classroom. And Mondays was like my worst day of the week. Well, actually Sundays, like the anticipation of Monday. And then Monday was like terrible, my first hour or two. And then I felt better towards the end of the day. And then Tuesday was better than Monday, Wednesday was better than Tuesday and so on. And then Friday is like, what the heck was wrong with me on Monday, right? Well, the weekend came, and then Monday came again, the same feeling again. I felt awkward. I felt, you know, insecure. I felt, and I'm like, okay, okay it's got to get better, right? And people say, well, it's natural, you know, you get over after a while. You don't, it just wouldn't go away. And I'm like, what's wrong with me?
Why do you think you were drawn to that profession when you had such anxiety about standing in front of people? Well, because I care about kids. You know, I wanted to help kids, helping people, even like love and affection or caring for the for your students, showing them that you care for them and that kind of things. I was I really liked that, but I didn't like to be in front of the class all the time. And uh, I know that that was what I was signing on for, and I thought that I could handle it, being that, you know, I'm not talking to a whole bunch of professionals. These are high school kids, right? But then still, you know, I felt that anxiety being in front of the class, like I said, Monday through Friday. And and, and it was a cycle, you know. It, it never got better. So I moved to Austin from Houston, and... Um, I started working for Texas Employment Commission, mm. and I did a lot of good programs for them. Uh, I did communities and schools, which is a dropout prevention program, uh, and I also did the Job Corps program, uh, helping kids um, get education and training. And a lot of those kids had problems uh, with the court system or with you know with the law, and they were on probation and trying to get their life together. So I was trying to help those kids. Uh, and I did that for a while, you know, uh, all together for like 10 years working for the state. But then I had my first panic attack. I didn't know what that was. Uh, I found myself that I couldn't breathe. You know, I was breathing very heavy and hard. The breathing would not slow down. So I'm like, what the heck is wrong with me? So then I started getting lightheaded and I felt like I was going to pass out and uh, this is at the office. So somebody said, you were having a, you're having a panic attack. You need to go to the, see the doctor about it. And they, I went to the doctor and they said, yeah, you did have a panic attack. And, and he prescribed Xanax. Um, I was doing the unemployment services also with the Texas Employment Commission. So I was always doing presentations, which I felt anxiety, but I was, I was a little bit more controlled, the suppressing, you know, suppressing some of that, those feelings, and I would, I would still do my my job. But uh, it got to the point where it was kind of like putting stuff under the rug all the time, you know, and it just piling and piling. I mean, the medication would help me, but it never solved the the problem mm-hmm. to me, you know. It was just kind of like masking, you know, my my feelings and my emotions. So, yeah, after the Texas Workforce Commission, I got a call from um, a, pro- a new program that was starting. It was uh, Steve Jacobs uh, from Capital Idea. Capital Idea is basically getting people into careers, not just a job, but a career. Uh, so we provide the training, the education, everything that they need so they can get a good quality job with benefits and the whole nine yards, not just the job. But anyway, it was five of us that started that program from scratch. You know, I mean, we started recruiting. We started doing presentations. I worked for Capital Idea for almost five years. But uh, it got to the point where I felt that I've taken a, a deep dive and I was running out of oxygen. And I could see the surface, but I didn't think I had the energy to swim all the way to the top. 
that's how I felt uh, when I left Capital Idea. And they offered me all kinds of different options, work from home, part-time, don't leave, what about your benefits and all this and all that. I didn't care. I didn't care about anything. I just wanted to leave. I, I, I couldn't handle anymore. And, um, and I went into a deep depression, anxiety, paranoia. Were that. you doing anything besides the medication, like um, seeing a therapist or a counselor, or were not you at that time. involved in church or anything? No, uh, not at that time. Just I was on your own. On my own. So um, when I had, uh, I call it a nervous breakdown. I mean, because I, I totally went on the the radar after that. I would just I stayed at the house. I didn't want to leave. I even felt embarrassed going to the mailbox to pick up the mail. So I just kind of like stayed in one spot in the couch or whatever and just stayed there all day. And uh, it was really dark for me. That lasted for about three years until um, I just felt that I needed to get a job, get back on my feet. And I, I got some medication. You know, they thought I was bipolar. And then they thought maybe it's just... Uh, uh, anxiety and then depression so I was taking medication for just about everything for a large number of years but it wasn't doing anything for me I mean it would uh, gain weight uh, you know it made me foggy um, and it wasn't just doing the trick you know I had a lot of side effects that were kind of worse worse sometimes I felt worse so uh, I tried everything and um, so then so what is the answer, you know, why, why, what can I do now, you know, and so I started to look at more manual work, more, you know, using my hands more and trying to ease the, the anxiety. Uh, so I try to look for work that was less involved in the office and, and meetings and, you know, and the stress and the anxiety that I felt and working more on my own. So, um, and then uh, and then for the next, I don't know, uh, 15 years, I would get a little job here and a little job there. So then I started reading, you know, more about, when reflecting, why am I so nervous? Why am I feeling so anxious? What's, what happened to me that's causing me, is it, is it in my blood? Is it passed down from my mom or my dad? Or what? what's going on? Why, why do I feel so awkward? Why do I feel so much anxiety? So I started reading more about it, educating myself more about it. I would, uh, uh, you know, church too, praying, you know, uh, maybe I don't have enough faith. More prayer, you know, maybe God, you know, I need to get on my knees more often and so I I was trying to do all kinds of things to to help me deal with my anxiety and uh but you know I I wasn't finding a lot of uh positive feedback from a lot of that stuff my girlfriend and I were looking at documentaries and uh and uh, we were looking at into yoga and, and then she was telling me because she's she, she's been into yoga a lot herself and she was telling me about it, and then, uh, so then she, we were looking at some documentaries from some of those masters, like the Dalai Lamas, and you know all those guys that are very deep. And then we saw Thomas Keating, and I'm like, oh, there's a documentary. Who's this guy? I don't know. 
So when when I saw the documentary of Thomas Keating, a guy that gave his life to God basically when he was five years old, because uh, he you know he got really sick and he heard the nurse and the doctor talking about his condition that he might not make it. Okay, I want to know more about. It. I, I want to know more about it. So I started watching the documentaries and I started you know and then and then we started buying books. So we started reading about Thomas Keating and, and, and his beliefs and his findings and all of that and his study of religions, not just, you know, the Catholic Church or Christianity, but all the religions around the world. And at the end, uh, you know how we have this little something is missing in our lives. Everybody's got that almost. Maybe you think it's money. Maybe you think it's a relationship. Maybe you think it's a hot bigger house or something that you're always trying to get to fill that little empty hole with a little empty thing in, in your heart. And what I'm gathering is that it's, it's the, the union with God, that you have to have that union with God in order to fill that empty hole there. So then I started to do that for myself. I want to feel close to God. How do you get that union with God? Well, through prayer and silence. So then I started doing some meditation, some prayer, and I started looking into yoga, and I started looking at Thomas Keating for answers, and I felt like that's, that was one person that I could trust, one person that I know I can trust because his intentions were good from the beginning. He could have been a millionaire. He could have been whatever, you know, if it was about money, but he saw that that was not him. You know, so I found a little bit of uh, relief reading about him and and what he's saying are about our intentions our intentions and to be kind to yourself you know and i've never been kind to myself i hated myself for the longest i hated you know falling short not measuring up you know and uh i've never been kind to myself but i start thinking about all that and then uh, um so my understanding of prayer was that you pray and you're always asking God for something. God, can you help me with this? Can God, can you give me this? Always asking. And I felt, you know, um, and thankful. You know, thank you for the health. Thank you for, you know, helping me today for this with this. And But then when, when I started listening to Thomas King, he was talking about more, give him, okay, you kind of surrender to him in silence. And you want to connect with him in silence. You do that for like 20 minutes. Most of the time, because of my my anxiety and all the things, that I'm always thinking about something, it's very hard for me to get anywhere. Because always, you know, he, he talks about not getting on the boats that passing by, you know, and because your mind goes somewhere and get off the boat and go back to, you know, to the word that you, you know, for the prayer. Um, I find myself that for the first 20 minutes, <laughs> I was thinking the whole time about something else. And then the, the little alarm that I set up, set up goes off. It's like, oh my God, I, you know, I didn't get to do the silence as much as I wanted to. But it takes practice. It takes practice. So then I would do it like, you know, I'll try it again. And then I would get somewhere. I did it one time where I actually did 20 about 20 minutes of totally silence and I felt getting deeper and deeper with union with God and I felt the the connection 
you know, uh, of almost kind of like um, stages as, uh, you know, meditation and being in union, I felt so much peace and I'm like, I want more of that. So now one of the things that I'm beginning to realize and being kind with myself is that I, I do get a physical reaction in with stress and, and anxiety. I do. I, I don't want it, but it happens. It's kind of the fight or flight sort of deal response for me because it, it, you know, it happened to me for the first 16 years of my life. Even though I understand that is what is happening, I have to acknowledge that and not try to change it, but accept it sort of and be kind to myself and tell myself that, yes, this is my body reacting because of my trauma, but it's not who, really who I am. You know, and so I joined the men's group, the Circle of Men. It's like 30 people in a group, 25, 30 people. And when um, Clay Boykin did the introduction about, you know, okay, we're not here to judge anyone. Uh, we're here to support everyone. And this is not a group. This is a network. And we love each other. We care for each other. And it was stayed here, stays here. And, and I felt a lot of love, you know, from everyone. And I'm still, you know, with my fear, with my anxiety, my, you know, my fear is always in guard. You know, I always have my, my hands up for whatever happens. So then I start dropping my guard down and I start listening to the stories or the conversation. I felt that I needed to come out. And I told my story in, you know, short you know, very compacted, but just basic, you know, I came from Mexico and all the things that happened to me at home. My dad was very aggressive and abusive and my, my brothers and sisters and so on and growing up and then coming to the States. And I, oh my God, my nerves were just, I felt it all over me. I was shaking inside of me. I was sweaty. Uh, my, my body was reacting and I was like, what is happening to me as I'm talking and telling my story? And the group was just so understanding and so compassionate with my story. And, and then I put my head down and I said, I'm sorry, guys, I'm feeling this way. And everybody's like, no, man, there's nothing to be sorry about. There's nothing. They, you know, they were giving me assurance and acceptance for the very first time in a large group like that, you know. And, you know, uh, I still, I was, I felt embarrassed I felt the shame. I felt uh, all these negative uh, feelings about myself because I, I just kind of like I've been carrying this load of rocks and I just dumped it right in front of the group, you know. Yeah, and and when I did that, I was being I was apologizing for that because the group had to hear it, and everybody was so understanding and caring and loving and supportive and all that, that uh, it was the very first time, you know, I, I've been afraid of man for a long, because, you know, my history and, and everything that I experienced in my life, and I was angry at man. So being in a group of nothing but man and feeling a little bit of um, acknowledgement, acceptance, validation i just felt like oh, man after i finished doing my spill and and feeling embarrassed and all that 
I usually, when something like this happens, I tell myself, that was stupid. You know, don't go back there. You're, you're an embarrassment sort of thing. I tell that to myself. So, you know, my natural reaction is like, okay, I'm out of here. I'm not coming back. I'm so embarrassed and so ashamed. I'm not coming back. But I told the group, you know what? I am coming back. We are harder on ourselves, you know. I've learned that. And and for me, uh, people are nicer to me than I, than I'm nicer to myself. Yeah. And and I, I realize that. And I realize that that's what, that's how we are. I tell my 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 daughter who's 15 years old, you know, that has some of the you know some of the you know as a 15 year old girl, you know, going to school and friends and all of that and you know being very critical of themselves again, you know. It's like, no, mama, you know, just, you know, it's like, I don't even tell that to myself, but then I'll tell her, you know. Right. And it's like, I should listen to myself when I'm talking to her. It's easier for me to tell her that, but I can't, it's hard for me to tell myself, you know. That helped me a lot being in that group. But still, I'm always going to come up with my, my hands up, guarding myself, especially the first five, ten minutes, and then I feel more at ease. Uh, now... Can I stop my body from reacting? So far, I haven't been able to stop my body from reacting. I don't want to fight it, you know. I just wanted to be kind to myself and saying, it's okay, Alfredo, you know, you've been through some hard, it's okay, you know. Don't, don't be anxious about being anxious, you know. But I just have to be kind to myself, accept it. And maybe sharing, you know, maybe others might feel the same. And uh, maybe, you know, um, I can talk to them about it, compare notes and, you know, help each other out. This, this past um, meeting, we were talking about free will and what is God's will. But I really believe that God's will for everybody is for everybody to be nice and be the best human they can be. You know, you got struggles. We all have struggles, some worse than others. But at the end of the day, God's will for us is to be the best person that we can be. Help each other out. Be there for each other. Give somebody your hand so they can lift them up. And maybe they'll lift you up next time. That was Alfredo Gomez. Thank you so much, Alfredo, for your time and your energy and your vulnerability, your willingness to talk. Thanks for listening to Caterpillar Goo, and we will see you next time. <laughs>